The following podcast contains explicit language. People who are listening for the first time might hear a bad word or two. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 18th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to do our last ride with The Last Dance, assessing the final two episodes of the documentary and the series as a whole. We'll also be joined by broadcaster Ian Eagle, who'll speak with us about the challenge of calling games remotely. Finally, we'll talk about a new NFL proposal that would give teams better draft picks if they hired minority head coaches and general managers. Hello from Washington, D.C., home of your Washington Wizards, an NBA team that exists. Just throwing that out there. Also in D.C., his friend, colleague, documentary aficionado, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. I hear that the, this Michael Jordan guy played for the Washington Wizards. Dirty, vicious rumor. Also with us, it's a man known for winning on the track in the CrossFit gym and in a little game that we call life. Slate staff writer, slow burn host, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Hey, good morning. I'm not the loser that Michael Jordan thinks that I am. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. I think no better way to end uh, our pre-show banter. After 10 hours and an untold number of cigars, glasses of scotch, and perceived slights, the last dance waltzed off screen on Sunday night with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls winning their sixth and final championship. Although there was a notable segment on the murder of Steve Kerr's father in Beirut, The last 20% of ESPN's documentary series mostly focused on basketball, with an emphasis on the Bulls' battles with the Indiana Pacers and the Utah Jazz. Towards the end of the series, owner Jerry Reinsdorf gave his explanation for the series' central mystery. Why break up a team that had just won it all for the third straight time? Reinsdorf said that Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Ron Harper, and Steve Kerr were too old and expensive and bringing them all back for a run at a seventh title would have been suicidal. Jordan, watching Reinsdorf on an iPad, says that this is rubbish, that everyone should have had the opportunity to come back and do it all over again. And then, in the documentary, we hear this exchange. So is it then satisfying to leave at your peak? No. Or is it maddening to leave at your peak? It's maddening, you know, because I felt like we could have won seven. Uh, I really believe that. We may not have, but man, just not to be able to try, that's 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 something that, you know, I just can't accept for whatever reason. I just can't accept it. So this is where we leave Michael Jordan, Joel. He's unable and unwilling to accept the storybook ending that he wrote by sticking that jumper over Brian Russell in Utah. Uh, he doesn't acknowledge that he did write a new, less storybookish ending for himself in Washington, D.C., Um, But he's also, I think, justifiably annoyed that the Bulls dynasty ended the way that it did. Yeah, the ending to me in many ways undermined the premise that Jerry Krause was a villain here and confirmed that Jerry Reinsdorf held a lot of the cards here. It is important to acknowledge that though the idea that it would have been suicidal to bring back Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, Kerr, and Luke Longley, among others, seems ridiculous— But it's not necessarily wrong if you consider the fact that Scotty and Dennis were significantly diminished the next year in the lockout-shortened season. Michael Jordan sliced his finger while cutting a cigar that offseason and would have missed at least a few months. 
And it wasn't even clear that Scotty and some of those other guys wanted to make the kind of sacrifice that would have been necessary to return for another year. So although Reinsdorf is technically right in that the Bulls probably would not have won a championship or they would not have been the same team that they had been the year before, he didn't want to pay for it. And he allowed Jerry Krause to sort of stand in the breach there and take all of this abuse when it seems like he was pulling the strings behind uh, the scenes all the time. Yeah, that seems like a good assessment, Joel. I mean, did Reinsdorf call Phil Jackson and ask him to come back because he had second thoughts and wanted to overrule Jerry Krause? That's what he says. Um, did Phil Jackson say, nah, I want to take a break. It wouldn't be fair to Jerry Krause to overrule him. That seems plausible as well. I mean, the part that is most ridiculous here involves Jordan and Jordan's belief that if he and he alone had told Scottie Pippen and Steve Kerr and Dennis Rodman and Ron Harper that they should come back for one more go-round at diminished salaries, they would have been willing to do that. Um, and that's not clear to us because nobody else has asked in the documentary whether they would have been willing to do that. Maybe they were. this was enough for them. You know, they'd won three or six or some number in between. And they were ready to go play somewhere else and not get yelled at all the time as, who was it, Horace Grant or Luke Longley or somebody else said in a previous episode. Well, Scotty is the interesting question there. I think Jordan, you know, we do hear from Jordan that everybody except Scotty definitely would have agreed to do it, which I think is probably true. And then he just sort of like kind of waves away the Scotty question. He's like, yeah, that would have been an issue, but... If everybody was else was coming back, then Scotty wouldn't have missed out on that. We don't hear what Scotty Pippen's answer to that is. We don't know if he was asked and didn't answer. We don't know if he was asked and answered and they didn't put it in the documentary, which would have been a weird choice. Or we don't know if he wasn't asked. But that was a huge missing piece um, that we didn't hear from Scotty Pippen on that question. And you know, we've lingered a lot on the stuff that we don't hear and that we don't see in this documentary. Um, the fact that Jordan's tenure with the Wizards wasn't even mentioned in the on-screen text crawl at the end was weird. Um, but the biggest omission to me, you know, if we're going to just say, all right, we'll take the documentary on its own terms. These last two were on about basketball, mostly. You know, it seemed like they were edited more quickly uh, because they, they didn't have that much time to finish these these last two. But, you know, the person we didn't hear from who's such an interesting character here is Brian Russell, who Jordan says in his Hall of Fame speech, you know, he tells the story that he tells here about how Brian Russell, like, talked shit to him um, during the baseball year, during a pickup game and saying, you know, you quit because, you know, I, I could lock you down on defense. And this was another of the slights that drove Jordan. I put him on my list. Put him on my list, yeah. <laughs> but Brian Russell is a guy who had to work really hard to get into the NBA. He was a guy who had his moments in those NBA finals series. But he was also somebody, he was the guy who, you know, doubled off of Jordan to like double team Scottie Pippen, you know, in the post to allow Jordan to make like a game winning three in one of these final series. Jordan made two game winning shots over him and we don't hear from him. And he's a, you know, his perspective on this and his journey here, I think are extremely interesting and probably would be more revelatory than anything we hear from Jordan. Which, what's interesting to think about here, and of course it doesn't come up in this documentary, is that 
Byron Russell played with Michael Jordan in his last year with the Wizards. And so I don't know if that has anything to do with why we didn't hear him here, if they did not interview him at all. But it is worth noting that he had a relationship with Michael Jordan that went past that, you know, that time with the Bulls. He got to experience Michael Jordan in the locker room and see the kind of dude that he was and dealt with him on a day-to-day basis. And all of a sudden, we don't hear from him, even though he plays this pivotal role in you know, the myth-making machine of Michael Jordan. So I could think of a lot of reasons why you didn't hear him. I'm sure they wanted to talk to him and he just didn't want to talk. I mean, that seems like the likely explanation, but it's it would have been nice to hear from him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Should we talk about the pizza? Y- yeah, let's talk about the pizza. Well, this is all going back to the myth-making machine around the Jordan brand, right? Like, I- <laughs> first of all, why would you ever eat Anything brought to your house by five people at once. That it like this it's not clear who's the deliverer, who like why were there five people necessary to bring a pizza to your room? Joel, I think we need to set the context here for, <laughs> do for we? no, we do. We yeah. do, yeah, I think we do. Right. So this is the nineteen ninety-seven finals against Utah. The Bulls are in Utah, and before game five, Jordan is hungry late at night. He's with his guys in his room. And they have apparently dissed him and not had dinner with him for some reason. And Jordan says, I'm hungry. And so his people order him a pizza. That's the setup. That's the setup. Well, Joel, I mean, it sounds like you're the one buying into the myth-making here. Like the documentary wants you to believe that it's somehow sketchy that five people are delivering the pizza to him. Um, But the director in an interview after this episode aired was like, I don't believe that Michael Jordan was poisoned and then seemed like unable or unwilling to answer the question of like, why did you put something in the, why did you insinuate something in the documentary that you don't believe? Like you're left with, you're left to believe that Michael Jordan was poisoned, was poisoned. Yeah, right. <laughs> by the people of Utah. Yes. And that's also not how food poisoning works. Like you don't <laughs> like, you know, normally it takes like 24 hours before something like that really starts to <laughs> Bubble up. I mean, I mean, maybe Michael, you know, Michael Jordan has a body that is, you know, unique to all of us. So maybe food poisoning. <laughs> he uh, metabolizes Utah-based right. pizzas and and uh, four hours or less. Right. The part of the post-documentary interview that Jason here did with Jalen Rose and Jacoby on ESPN that was very Jordan-esque is that in describing the scene, the director says that. He told him that the pizza arrives. Jordan doesn't want anyone else to eat any of it. So he spits on the pizza to reserve it for himself. This is weird behavior. He treated everybody like Horace Grant. <laughs> Did he want to eat Horace Grant? Yeah, he well, you didn't allow, you know, Horace Grant wasn't allowed to eat if Michael <laughs> Jordan didn't think he should eat. And I guess it, it, it's all, this rule applies to all of his friends, uh, friends in quotes, by the way. But yeah, uh, yeah. I, it's just, yeah, Jordan is just an exceedingly weird dude. And I mean, I guess like we don't see, isn't this one of the problems with the documentary? And I, I'm going to say some nice things about it eventually, but mm-hmm. we had 22 years to sort of really investigate the claim here, right? That the flu game <laughs> is is something that happened and it was the flu in quotes. And we're left with the same mythology, the same, like, you know, insinuation that Michael Jordan overcame, you know, uh, an obstacle placed in his way. Not that this was something that he did to himself, 
which, you know, that he was sick because of something that he may have done to himself or that he's just a normal human and got sick before a game, that no, this is yet another brick in the foundation that Michael Jordan was constantly overcoming things that were placed in his way. And that's just sad. Right. This is the story. This is the story that Michael Jordan has tells himself about the flu game. The flu is too human. The flu is normal. I got sick. I don't know how, but I got sick. So he has created a story that is more dramatic and more self-centered. The fans of Utah wanted to poison me, and five dudes working at a pizza shop got an order, knew it was for me, delivered it to my room, knowing that I was the only one that was going to eat it, and then I got sick and went out and torched Utah the next night. One of the five delivery people had a poison-tipped umbrella. That was <laughs> that was suspicious. He was driving a Batmobile too. Well, you guys, you guys said a couple weeks ago, and I think I questioned it at the time, but you were right. I'll acknowledge it that this documentary was designed to give Jordan the last word on every topic. Very true, accurate Thank observation, you. and that Thanks absence for of that. all the <laughs> absence of all the wizard stuff is is one part of it. The way that um, the director acknowledges not believing certain things that are said, but not including interviews or material that might undercut it. That's pretty damning, right? I mean, it's not journalistic. Uh, it's not what you would do if um, the thing that you care about most is presenting an accurate and truthful picture of uh, of what happened. So, uh, you know, the other thing that's like super weird in the last episode of the series is that we learn that Michael Jordan has children. <laughs> yeah, right. Jeffrey, Marcus, and Jasmine Jordan make on-camera appearances where they say nothing interesting. They're just like, oh, yeah, we didn't like Utah. And one is left to conclude, since we're just kind of talking about insinuations here, that they were just added at the end because people noticed that they weren't in the documentary. Like, that's the only explanation that makes sense, that Jordan, uh, the, oh, Jordan has a family. Let's let's include that. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't really a place for them here. Like, I mean, it, I, don't, I don't think we needed Jordan's kids to understand that uh, playing in Salt Lake City uh, was really difficult. You know, I, I don't know <laughs> what they had to add there, but, I, you know, it does, you know, rebut the criticism that there were no family members there, that Michael Jordan was a, you know, this lone wolf that had no family. Well, I think it misunderstands the criticism in rebutting it. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. I, but I, I do want to say this, because I do think that the final two episodes were the real payoff of the documentary, and that the behind-the-scenes footage was supposedly the you know, the foundation of this, that that's what everybody wanted to see. And this is how this whole project happened. Well, we finally got to see it, right? We finally got to see Dennis Rodman running away from the media after skipping out for wrestling, you know, to do an NWO, a WCW wrestling event. Um, We get to see Phil gathering up the team to tell them that Dennis dishonored them. We get to see Mike, you know, Mike telling Larry Bird, hey, bitch, fuck you. You know, Um, we get a lot of that stuff. And that's, the stuff that I think that people wanted to see because that was, you know, that was what it was built. Like, oh, these behind the scenes footage of Jordan's last year. Well, here it is. And I'm glad we got to see it. I, you know, so I was fascinated by the documentary all the way throughout, you know, in spite of the criticisms we have, but it was this sort of stuff. Seeing Michael Jordan dancing to Kenny Lattimore tunes is the sort of stuff that you wanted to see and you hope that you would see when we 
uh, got started on this, you know, five weeks ago. Yeah, and the footage that I felt encapsulated the entire documentary was after they win the last game in 1998, and Jordan walks into the locker room. A lot of the players are already there because he's been doing interviews or whatever. And the greetings he got were so half-hearted that it was really jarring to me. And the after-party scenes were also really weird. Jordan feels very isolated. It doesn't feel like his teammates, once they get off the court, are particularly interested in sharing this moment with him or even look terribly excited about what they've just accomplished. I think you might be projecting a little bit there. Players seemed pretty happy to me. I mean, especially on the court. I don't know, man. It was a lot of sort of half-assed hand slaps walking around the room. Well, I will say this. I've been on a 30 for 30 binge in the last month or so. So I've revisited the documentaries on Magic Johnson, Dennis Rodman, and the Bad Boys, among others. And what I did notice by comparison that those bull celebrations seemed a lot more subdued and stilted after that initial burst of euphoria, right? Like everybody right. gets excited yeah. on the court. There is the burst of euphoria. Yeah, there's the burst of euphoria. But then you see in these other documentaries, Magic Johnson, you know, heartily hugging people and pouring champagne on each other. And it's like everybody is like very happy. There's a lot of warmth and a camaraderie. I didn't see that in any of these Bulls celebrations. Not in 1998. Yeah, certainly not in 1998. Maybe that's just, you know, the omission of, of editing or whatever. Like, maybe that's just an editing choice and we didn't get to see that. But I didn't get the same feelings of warmth from those championships in comparison to the other ones that we saw with the other superstars, right? What about the warm exchange between Jordan and Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't that even is... know Leonardo DiCaprio was famous then. I, you know, on second thought, the the lack of warmth that I'm talking about was after they beat the Pacers before he tells Bird, fuck you. So I guess it was only the Eastern Conference Finals and it was only Game 7, but yeah, they didn't look very excited. Well, there was a sense that this was a relief, that there's a lot of pressure and it was a huge burden on them the whole season. So, you know, that's fair enough. I mean, I think the thing that was really revelatory to me and back to what I said in the introduction is that after Jordan goes through his whole spiel on um, how it was unfair and unjust that they weren't given a chance to win a seventh title, Phil Jackson comes on and is like, yeah, it was a good time to end. It was a good team. Yeah, It's time to go. We're, we're, we're ready to have it be done. And, you know, Phil, Phil Jackson has his own problems. Certainly not a perfect guy. Um, but that does, I think, in very short form encapsulate the difference between those men and also just between Jordan and other people who are more, um, I guess, emotionally uh, available or like not stunted is just the idea that like you should be grateful for the good things that happened to you in your life and hold on to those and he had a really, really great run, maybe one of the best runs ever. Um, but he just really hangs on to everything that was taken from him, that he was deprived of, that he was denied, that other people tried to stop him. And, you know, maybe that propels you to greatness. Maybe you think that that propels you to greatness, but it clearly like makes you angry and unhappy and not content with, um, you know, accomplishments that are 
extraordinary. And that's just a really sad disconnect. It is. And it that, and that ultimately is one of the, the things that undermines the documentary. Um, Gotham Chopra, the director who um, did the co- some of the Kobe Bryant documentary stuff, um, there was a, he's quoted in a piece in the Washington Post by Ben Strauss about the vanity project nature of The Last Dance. And Chopra says about working with Kobe, it turned into a form of therapy. Creative ownership over something is also an agency over his own story. And that makes a big difference, whether it's Kobe, Jordan, or anyone else. And while that is absolutely true, what's revealed here is that that is creatively powerful if the subject is thoughtful and introspective, if the subject is willing to sort of reconsider his his career arc. Kobe was willing to do that, and Jordan obviously was not or wasn't able to. Yeah, to, to build off that point, in these last two episodes, we get to see Steve Kerr, who's like a real delight. Um, you know, that I could do without some of the self-deprecation. I mean, okay, UCLA didn't want you, but you still managed to get into Arizona. You were you're pretty good, Steve. Um, but at the end, he gives up the game on all of this when he says about Michael Jordan, we saw him as a bully, right? And he had said earlier in the documentary, it was very difficult to reach him emotionally. And so I just got the sense that as we come to the end here, that it was really unfulfilling for all of these people. Like You just don't get the, the sense that yeah. being a champion was fulfilling or a pursuit that is worth pursuing because it alienated Michael Jordan from everybody in his life, you know, it seems like. And, you know, I think about even Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen sacrificed his body, sacrificed money for the greater glory of the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan never even fucking said, like, I never saw him come to the fe- to the defense of Scottie Pippen and say, hey, man, that guy laid it all on the line for me. Like, after that game six in Utah, it was all about Jordan's heroics, not about Scotty fighting through a back injury that would have set most other people down. And I just think that just sort of encapsulates everything that we saw coming with Jordan in this documentary, that it's all about him and his greater glory, and everybody else was there to serve him and to help him. And if they felt the way they felt, then that's how they felt. But Michael Jordan didn't care. All right. Last dance. Thank you for all the content. We appreciate it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The Bundesliga returned over the weekend, and BT Sport in the UK was there to cover every touch. And by there, I don't mean in the fanless stadiums in Dortmund and Berlin, but rather in the homes of producers, directors, and commentators scattered across Britain. That's certainly going to be the setup when live sports return to America, play-by-play and color, brought to you not from Wrigley Field or the Staples Center, but from ESPN and NBC studio booths in Connecticut, or from their home offices, or the home offices of their wives which is from where our next guest (laughs) joins us. He is Ian Eagle, who calls the NFL for CBS, the NBA for TNT, and much, much more. 
Welcome back to the show, Ian. Great to be with you guys. Uh, this is not necessarily the way that uh, I would like to fill airtime with you, but it's still something at least connected to normalcy in some way. Yeah, we can talk about sports. That's yeah, all we need to do. Yeah. Um, as I'm sure you know, the very first live sports on the radio on KDKA in Pittsburgh in 1921 was based off of reports telephoned into announcers. Ronald Reagan and even more famous play-by-play guys did it, converting phone calls and teletype messages into gripping game narratives. I'm guessing you're not quite old enough to have called a game off of a teletype <laughs> machine, I but remote broadcasts have been pretty normal before COVID, even for big events like the Olympics, World Cups, college football. Give us a little context on how often you've called a game this way and under what circumstances. Yeah. So for me, obviously, I've been more of the traditional broadcaster from the start of my career, but I have received some assignments that were a bit unconventional and was asked ahead of time, are you comfortable with this? NBA games, sometimes you're not going to be in the same exact venue as the actual event. I got hired by the NBA to call the NBA finals, the Miami Heat and the San Antonio Spurs 2013. And I did it from a studio in beautiful Secaucus, New Jersey. And did every moment of every game of that series off of a large screen. My broadcast partner was Jim Spinarkle. We had a little production meeting before we went ahead and did our games and tried to treat it as normal as usual, but not being at the game means that you're doing a more general call. You're not picking up the nuances. You're not feeling the energy from the crowd. And often you had to supply your own energy. Now, the difference there, you were getting ambient noise back into your headset. So there was a little bit of the crescendo that would build from an audience. But your own personal energy, you had to generate yourself. And the whole goal for an announcer is to convey the emotion and drama of an event. And you can still do that through your voice, but there's no doubt there will be an adjustment period if there are no fans in the stands, and then decisions will have to be made in regards to uh, the noise that uh, is going to accompany the event itself. Will they pump in crowd noise? Uh, Will they see that as almost like a laugh track, like you would get on a sitcom? And it's an interesting analogy because Seinfeld, which was one of the great sitcoms of all time, laugh track, it worked, it played. Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I enjoyed equally, if not more (laughs) at times in Seinfeld, no laugh track, and it played, it worked, but a completely different viewing experience. Wait, I I just, real quick for a second, you called the Ray Allen 3 from a remote studio. Correct. Oh my gosh. Well, how did that, I mean, like you said, I mean, that must have felt weird. Did you feel the emotion of that moment from a remote studio? I did because everything had been building in that game. And keep in mind, that was not game one. That was game six. So I had some experience in how to handle the the ups and downs of broadcasting from a remote location. It wasn't 
the first time that I had done it. In fact, I did the World Basketball Championships with Bill Raftery in a studio in Secaucus, although the games were being played in Barcelona. And I was getting text <laughs> the entire first game throughout. You're in Barcelona? <laughs> no, I'm in Secaucus. <laughs> so when people when people experience. texted you, they wouldn't say Barcelona. They would say Barcelona. No, they, yeah. <laughs> two people in particular put a th in their. Text. You're in Barcelona. <laughs> uh, yeah, it it was a little odd because people just assume you're there. I never once said or tried to uh, convey the idea that I was at the event, but. I think there's just a general connection that people make. If you're covering the event, the assumption is, oh, he must be there. Well, let's listen to a clip of you calling that Ray Allen a buzzer beater in the 2013 finals. James, a three, no good. Rebound, Bosch has got it. Clears, Allen fired. Oh, Ray Allen, he drills it. We are tied at 95 seconds to go. So it's a great call. And the question that I had for you, Ian, is one that you kind of got to in your first answer, which is how much of this is real and how much of it is performance? You know, we know you, we know you're dripping with sincerity in everything that you do, but how much of it um, in a regular game and in a remote game, are you kind of acting? Are you trying to convey emotion just that maybe isn't isn't there, but you want the viewer at home to feel excited? It's a fantastic question and probably does not get talked about nearly enough when we discuss sportscasting in general. I think as you evolve in your career, you begin to figure out what energy level is required for the event that you're calling. And to say that I'm exactly the same for every event that I do There's a consistency in my approach. There's certainly a consistency in my preparation, but the job requires the marriage of preparation and performance. So my preparation, which I take a lot of pride in, in getting ready for any event, sometimes I'm calling five to six games in a week, and it varies from a television football game to a football game on the radio, to NBA games local, to NBA games national, to a college basketball game. That could be in one (laughs) week. So to say that I'm going to be exactly the same for every single event is not a fair statement. Of course, uh, there's going to be a variance in, in how I approach it, how I cover it, and how I use my voice. If you're doing a game where the home team is on a flurry. Football, basketball, doesn't matter. The crowd is going to play a much larger role, and you're going to have to push your voice in order to break through with the crowd and create this blend where your voice is connecting with the crowd. If the same exact thing is happening with the visiting team and the crowd is playing no role, and you're now going at a nine or a 10 with your vocals, it's not going to come across the same way because you don't have the backup there. So there is performance involved in this job. And of course, when you've got a great highlight in the NBA, when Marv Albert said, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan, 
of course, he, he happened to pick the right word in the right moment, and he punched it in the exact perfect way. And he also recognized that in that moment, it was probably going to live on for a long time. If you have the right call and the right words in the right moment, it can elevate that moment. Right. So the the issue here with remote games, there there are multiple ones. I mean, one is something you mentioned uh, uh, a few seconds ago, which is preparation. If you're not in the arena, you know, you might not be doing the same kinds of interviews before a game with athletes, with with coaches, Um, you know, your typical NFL game where you get to sit down with members of the staff and talk to players the days before. Um, so you're, you might be losing something of the human connection in terms of what you're able to relate. And that's just one thing, right? Oh, no doubt about it. Now, uh, with zoom becoming such a big part of our lives, I could easily see that transitioning to our new normal in covering sports where you will get the players that you asked for on an NFL Sunday, but the interview will now take place via laptops. And your hope is you can still cultivate some information that can be used over the course of your broadcast. But the human connection certainly is going to be affected. Uh, There's going to be an adjustment period here. There's no doubt about it. Uh, The next part of the equation will be the sterile nature in the conditions that you're working. Whether you are on site, let's say the NFL makes the decision that they deem the announcers essential, but no fans in the stands, you're in your broadcast booth, you're in your typical setup, yet the game does not have the feel that it had during normal conditions. And now it's up to you to generate the energy or to gauge what's required. You know, the one thing that that I would say in regards to the performance aspect that we were discussing it still has to be authentic. If it's not coming from a real place, listeners, viewers, they sniff it out. They know something doesn't fit, which doesn't belong and why. That highlight didn't deserve that big a call, or that highlight was actually better than the call that you provided. That in the moment, split second, when you have to make those decisions as a broadcaster, you've got to determine whether or not your voice is matching the action or are you underplaying, overselling? All of those things are done in a millisecond. And now when you don't have a crowd to help you figure all of that out, uh, that that's going to be based more on your gut instincts. Brian Curtis's story for The Ringer about this was great. And he did a really good job of kind of demystifying how Um, guys like you call games in an arena or a stadium versus at home. And I was wondering if you could walk us through that. Like in an NFL game, you might actually be watching a lot of the game on the monitor from, um, you know, the sixth level or whatever. So can you just kind of walk through football and and basketball and um, what some of the kind of advantages and disadvantages are of calling it in the stadium versus uh, remote? Well, the way my play-by-play career started, I began in radio. So when I started with the Nets, 1994-95, that was all I knew. I had no television experience whatsoever. I had a blank canvas, and I was told 
by anyone that was an expert in the field, you are the conductor. You're in charge. What you see is now the picture that you're going to paint for the listener that's driving in their car, that's doing some gardening in the backyard, that's drinking a beer on the deck, whatever it might be. So when it's put in those terms, it's fairly easy to understand. Okay, I'm going to paint the word picture. I transitioned to television the very next year, and it was a whole new world. It was more of an analyst medium. So that was the first thing that struck me. I was working with Bill Raftery, who is a brilliant guy. And what you see is what you get. And a lot of the times I was getting out of his way. But I also realized that the producer, the director, they were steering the ship more than I was as the play-by-play announcer. Football, I got the Jets radio job in 1997. Same situation as three years earlier. Paint the word picture. The next year, I get the CBS job covering the NFL, and I'm doing TV now with some experience behind me at the local level. So the transition wasn't as big a leap. And to be honest with you, the transition wasn't that big a leap for me from 94 to 95 because I hadn't really developed any habits. It was still very new. So uh, in a way, it probably benefited me that I hadn't done radio for 15 years. And all of a sudden now, I had to change what I was looking for and where my focus was concentrated on. Basically, when I got to the television side of things, I realized that I needed to talk to pictures. This is the essence of what we're doing. If fans can't see what I'm talking about, then there's a disconnect. And you have to get on the same page as your producer and director. And you have to use that talkback button that goes directly into the truck. If you see something they're not seeing, alert them so they can find it. And now you're in concert with one another. And you're working together as opposed to me doing a separate broadcast from the truck. So for an NBA game, for an NFL game, there is such a collaborative process in covering the event. And that part is going to be a little different. I can no longer be the eyes and ears if I'm seeing something else develop because I'm just getting what they're getting. I'm getting one screen. Now, maybe uh, there could be some advanced setups where we have multiple looks, where you can see ISO monitors, which we might have on a normal television broadcast. The analyst is peeking at a different monitor that's not on television, not our program monitor, but an ISO monitor, and notices something and tells the producer or director, hey, get a shot of this or keep an eye on that for this play because they see it develop. We might be a bit more limited because we just don't have the same kinds of options that we would normally have under our usual setup. The reason that there's been more remote coverage is that covering live sports on location is really expensive and there's a shit ton of live sports available to be broadcast and you you practically networks and other producers can't send um, crews to cover every game. The goal of the announcer, of course, is to make us not realize that we're missing anything. And my question is, I guess there are two questions here. One is, are we missing something by not having your eyes, your physical eyes and your physical emotion in the stadium or arena or on the field? And do you worry um, where we are now that 
this will be a convenient way for uh, networks and other sports producers to say, hey, we can really cut costs by remote broadcasting more than we have in the past. Yeah, first part of it, yes, uh, you are missing something. If the announcers and the producers and director are not on site, uh, you're missing part of the feel that comes with covering an event and not just doing the nuts and bolts and telling you exactly what you're seeing. Uh, There is still something to being there in person and experiencing it and being able to convey it. With the last dance, Bob Costas stepped in for that final run for Michael Jordan as the play-by-play announcer and really did an excellent job. Bob is a tremendous journalist and uh, understands the medium. But the interesting part for me is looking back on that final edition, he was there and had the right words and the right tone, and it lives all these years later. He chose uh, the exact narratives that we needed that helped tell that story. There will be a disconnect if you're not there. Uh, You're not going to have the same vibe. There's just no way. There's no way to recreate that. Uh, There is no way to simulate that. Will it be passable? Yes, it will be passable. And for most people right now, given the circumstances, they would take it in a heartbeat. And I get it, 100% get it. We just want something right now. But big picture, long-term, no, the, the product would suffer. And look, some companies have already done it. They've done it without telling anyone that they have a remote production. They may have the announcers on site, but the producer and director are back in a studio somewhere. They're not on site. And there are some cases where the announcers are not on site and they don't necessarily tell you that when the broadcast starts. Soccer, as we know, very common. Uh, That's probably, to me, the most common sport of all of them, that there are matches happening all over the world. And there are two guys in a studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, calling them. Lots of them. But I think people will accept what the new normal is short term. Long term, I think there would be an issue if we don't get back to the standard in which we've grown accustomed to. I think I've got one question for you since you brought it up uh, about the last dance. Um, I know that you did a show with Phil Jackson, a radio, a weekly radio show with Phil Jackson. So, uh, can you just real briefly tell us about first, were you in the same room with Phil Jackson when you were doing these interviews? How appropriate is this question at this moment? (laughs) No, I was not really. I was with him one time when the Lakers came in to play the Knicks. That was the only time he was available to come into the studios at Sirius. And that was the only time we did the show looking at one another. And every other show that we did for that season, he was somewhere else, sometimes in a hotel room, sometimes at the practice facility, uh, sometimes in a remote location that he did not divulge. (laughs) So, uh, yes, Phil Jackson and I did a show for an entire NBA season, and we were together once. Wow. Did you feel like you ever got into a rapport with Phil then? Uh, not not the way that I normally would uh, like to, to think of chemistry. No, uh, I, I would look back on that and say, 
there was definitely a disconnect because he was doing the show during a very brief time that he had actual time to commit to it in between other things. So it was never a focus for him. Phil was very easy to deal with. He could not have been more of a gentleman. He's a very interesting guy. His view of what the show should be compared to what my view was and management were two very different things. (laughs) Uh, He at one point on a show, while there were definitely some things happening with the Lakers, he wanted to do 20 minutes on canned goods. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. That's real. And I, I remember after the show meeting with somebody from Sirius and, and he asked me, how, how did you get on that topic? I said, I did not get on that topic. <laughs> that was Phil. And as I attempted to get Phil off that topic, he went back to that topic. So, uh, yeah, it, it's something that I always looked at as, as a real strength of mine, connecting with my partners, finding that, that dynamic that works, that was digestible for the audience. I would say that was one of the few instances where I just couldn't quite get over the hump uh, on, on that particular setup. Stefan, we should wrap this up, but I think, you know, before we go, we should all just, you know, grade how we did, you know, not in the same location. I would give us a solid C, you know, I think very little rapport, but we faked it well. Yeah, that's a passing grade. Ian Eagle calls the NFL, the NBA, pretty much everything else. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ian. And great to see you guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. All right, I want to let you know that in this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will be talking to our Slate colleague, Heather Schwedell, not a sports fan, uh, about her interpretations of The Last Dance. What was it like for a sports newbie? Please stick around for that and join Slate Plus, slate.com slash hangup plus. The NFL came up with the Rooney Rule in 2003 under threat of litigation from a pair of civil rights attorneys, one of them Johnny Cochran. The rule, which requires teams to interview minority candidates for head coaching and front office positions, was meant to boost minority hiring. It hasn't really worked. Today, 17 years later, the NFL has three black head coaches, the same number as when the Rooney Rule was adopted. The league, it seems, wants that to change. The NFL will reportedly consider a pair of resolutions during the owner's virtual meeting on Tuesday. The first would do away with the rule that permits teams to block assistant coaches from interviewing for coordinator positions with other teams. The second would reward teams with improved draft slots if they hire minority head coaches or football executives. So, Josh, do you think NFL teams are now going to fall over themselves to hire Marvin Lewis? I think probably not. Poor poor Marvin. But... Anthony Lynn, one of the three black head coaches, uh, I think, had it exactly right when he said in an interview, I think sometimes you can do the wrong thing while trying to do the right thing. 
I don't think that it's a bad idea for the NFL to look at the Rooney rule and say, how can we improve this? How can we get more opportunities for minority coaches and executives? That's a good impulse. The way that they're going about it here or that they're proposing to go about it here seems wrong in that people that support minority hiring and people who oppose it are going to be united in thinking that this is a bad idea. If you are upset or outraged or or think that there should be more opportunities here, you're going to look at this and be like, all right, you're saying that you're now quantifying like a minority head coach is worth six spots in the third round. I mean, we can go through the specifics of the proposal, but it's basically like putting a value on a coach that's associated with like moving up a couple spots in the draft. And it, it just feels wrong. And it also sends the message that, you know, teams won't do this unless they're given a cookie for, you know, oh, well, you don't want a black coach? Here, we'll give you a third round pick. I'm like, oh, okay. That, now, now I really do want a black coach. I mean, it just sends the wrong message. And on the other side, you're going to have the usual suspects, people being like, um, this is unfair. It's discrimination. It's the same conversations that you hear about affirmative action. And that's going to be unfair to the coaches that do get these opportunities. They're going to be seen as um, being less deserving um, because, you know, these inducements are now attached to it. So, you know, Stefan, it just seems like a good idea in theory and just really, really bad in practice. Let's start with the NFL's history. It's not just how many black coaches there are. It's their overall hiring policies, and they've been uniformly terrible over the years. The Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport, that group that's run by Richard Lapchick, most recently gave the NFL a D-plus in hiring for coaches and an F for hiring diversity for general managers. Um, This all reflects the horrific insularity of NFL ownership. I mean, you said, give them a cookie. I mean, it's exactly like that. The NFL has to treat its owners like toddlers. Um, These are the same people who think Colin Kaepernick is a social menace. It's astounding how little, what little awareness the 32 owners in the NFL have of what constitutes collective fairness, what constitutes equity, what constitutes progress, and they demonstrate their failings over and over and over. It really shows to me how insulated NFL ownership is from the reality of their own workplaces. And Josh, you you mentioned something about how, you know, those coaches that might get hired um, under these circumstances might be seen as less deserving, which that's true, but I have... And I think that if you got hired under those circumstances, you might have might not have as much of a problem as you think, because that's never stopped the NFL coaching carousel from hiring people that are seen as less deserving all the time. I mean, nobody can look at Mike Shula, Brian Schottenheimer, Wade Phillips, Jim Moore Jr., Kyle Shanahan, Jay Gruden, the Ryan brothers, Mike Nolan, Lane Kiffin, you know, even Tom Dimitrov. All these guys are nepotism hires. And nobody ever says, hey, that guy isn't less deserving. It's just assumed that when you get in there, you get in there and you have to do your job. And so I think that even if you got hired under these circumstances, you got to take it and do the job that you can with it because those opportunities just don't come around. And it's never stopped anybody, you know,'s middling son from accepting a job. But um, more broadly, 
like you said, John, I don't think this is going to change anything. I don't think teams care that much about a third round pick, right. you know, uh, or or positioning in a third round pick to do something like this. I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't seem like enough of an, an inducement to do the right thing. Should there be an inducement, Joel? I mean, is there a, a better approach here? I mean, look, as Bomani Jones wrote on Twitter, having to bribe yeah. ownership to seriously consider hiring minority coaches is a staggering indictment of the NFL, is what Bomani wrote. Um should you have to do this or is this a, you know, is there a way to, to, to improve minority hiring in a league like the NFL? I, I don't know because, um, I mean, it, it, it's so dependent, as you mentioned, on, on these owners and these people that really don't necessarily believe in diversity or fairness in hiring as a concept in the first place, right? Like, I mean, there are people that skirt these sort of rules all the times in other industries. So, I don't know that there's anything that could necessarily be done, but they should do something, right? But I always think about it this way, that the problem with the pipeline is not at head coaching and, you know, the head coaching position or general managers. You've got to build a pipeline way before you ever get to that point. Um, A lot of coaches get stuck in positions that, you know, position coaching or roles that never get that sort of responsibility and it is not really an advancement. And I'll, I'll, I'll use this example. So I played at TCU 1996-98. In 96, we had three black assistant coaches at TCU. This is 1996. All three of them today are running backs coaches. Still, you know, <laughs> and, and and only one of them has had an opportunity to be a coordinator at some point in their careers. And it wasn't like, one of those coordinator positions where you call plays, it was being a coordinator in name only. So you just think about it. So like that guy is never even going to get a chance to be, you know, to get the sort of advancement that somebody else that, you know, gets a coordinator position when they're 31 years old, you know, a guy like Lincoln Riley or, or whoever else. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I get what they're trying to do, but the problem is pipeline and I don't know how you deal with that. So a, a couple of things, um, the thing that's the real indictment of the NFL as compared to other industries and hiring of minorities in leadership positions and journalism and which we're familiar with and and in uh, you know many other industries that we're less personally familiar with is a scandal in itself. But the NFL, the vast majority of players are black. And so when the coaches and uh, you know ownership and management, aren't black, then that is an indictment of the whole industry. I mean, it's an obvious point, but I think it's worth saying. Like, there are obviously people that can do these jobs and should be given the opportunity to do these jobs. So that's point number one. Um, The second point is, I think this is a really, really important lesson in the difference between, um, you know, how things are written down on paper and then how things are executed in practice. The Rooney Rule is progressive, and the NFL was progressive in instituting it in 2003. And the numbers that you mentioned, Joel, um, it's certainly true that the number of black coaches is the same now as it was 17 years ago. But that does, uh, it's a little bit more of a topsy-turvy story than that. It did initially, I think, work. And there were more coaches. And then just like, and again, this happens across other industries, these coaches get an opportunity and then maybe 
they don't, you know, some of them succeed and some don't. And then like Marvin Lewis, they don't ever get an opportunity again. So it's like, okay, we hired black coach. That didn't work. We're not going to do that again. And so I think the NFL is right in saying we need to do something different. We need to change something here. Right. But I thought Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk, had a really good point. The problem here is moving from the paradigm of punishment to the paradigm of reward. There's only been one fine ever issued for a Rooney Rule violation. That was to Matt Millen when he was with the Lions. Congratulations, Matt Millen, and being the only person to ever get fined for this. The NFL has been unwilling to punish teams for making a sham of the Rooney Rule process, for going through with interviews with coaches they don't intend to hire, with not taking it seriously. That is where the NFL should put its energy and attention, is making sure that these interviews are real, that more coaches are getting the opportunity to interview. The part about, um, you know, the first part that you mentioned, Joel, of giving more minorities opportunities to be coordinators, that is the part here that'll get the least attention, but is the most important. Um, And just bringing the whole concept of reward and giving a team something for, you know, a, a practice that they should be doing anyway, it just sends the total wrong message. Punish. Punish. Right. Reward. <laughs> and I'm glad you mentioned the bit about allowing assistant coaches to be interviewed for coordinator positions, because that is far more important. There are a lot of African-American and other minority coaches in the NFL, position coaches, position assistants, who don't get to move up. and Running back coaches. A lot of running back coaches, a lot of defensive back coaches, who, who don't get to move up, particularly because they don't get the opportunity to run the offense, which is the most likely path to becoming a head coach. So allowing coaches, assistant coaches, to be interviewed for these jobs and getting rid of some of these bogus deadlines and sort of periods when they're not allowed to talk to other teams is a real step forward. The insane part about this is that the NFL also is having to write into this rule that every team will have to notify the league about what an assistant coach's responsibility actually is to prevent teams from giving them titles that would prohibit them from being interviewed for these positions. So the league is going to have to build in rules to keep teams from changing the titles of assistant coaches to prevent them from qualifying to be interviewed for coordinator jobs. That is just another tremendous indictment about what this league has to do to prevent owners from doing the wrong thing. And a question I have is, who wanted this? Who proposed this and who wanted this? Does the NFL actually want this? Is there some sort of, you know, potential lawsuit in the works that we don't know about? Have they been contacted by somebody that makes them want to address this now? Because I guess I, I'm just curious about what's what's pushing this. Well, you know, like, like this past offseason, Joe Judge gets the Giants head coaching job and he was a special teams coach, right? And the guy that got hired in Cleveland, Kevin Stefanski, these are guys that don't have as much experience and as many accolades as Eric Bieniemy, the you know black offensive coordinator for the Chiefs. So the NFL is responding to um, you know events that happened in 2020, and I bet they thought that they were going to get praised for it. Right. I bet mm-hmm. they did. Right. Well, and that's also look. This public relations does affect the NFL. They are not immune to bad PR. Um, Jim Trotter, who's African American, who covers the NFL for the NFL Network, said at the end of last year that. 
a Clemson offensive coordinator named Tony Elliott rejected being interviewed by the Panthers because he thought it was going to be a bogus interview. And then a a week or so later, he quoted an unnamed black NFL assistant coach. NFL has finally shown it's not the place for black men to advance. It's ridiculous. It's disgusting. We can sell tickets and make plays, but we can't lead. Maybe there was pressure and is pressure and there should be pressure. Is it coming from the NFLPA? Is it coming from an outsider like Cyrus Mary or lawyers that are once again going to have to threaten the NFL or have? We don't know right now, but that wouldn't be out of the question. It's not for me to tell Tony Elliott whether or not to take interviews that he knows may be a sham or not, because at least for the Panthers, the it, it had been telegraphed that Matt Rule, the head coach of Baylor, was always going to be the guy in that role, right? But I do think it's important to take those interviews because you just never know. Like getting in the room, and that's why like the idea that you know people might be diminished by getting installed you know, through these means might make them seem less deserving kind of falls apart because the thing is is that often guys just need to get in the room. And that's the biggest problem um, in a lot of these in these instances, you know, that's just not even getting the opportunity to make your case to the decision makers. And like, that's the piece that needs to be solved here. And yes, this proposal does kind of get at that. But I just... I guess I'm just really cynical about the idea that the NFL and the people that are in charge of these franchises are really going to do anything. I mean, unless you punish them. But even then, you're punishing them not for not hiring, but for not taking the the rules seriously. Because that's another step, right? Taking the rules seriously and then going through and making a hire. And I just, you know, we've been talking about this my entire life as a football fan, and there hasn't been much movement on it. And, uh, you know, I... I doubt that we'll see much movement on it the rest of my life. Well, I think you're right that if these rules went into place and, you know, it, it's unclear, it seems extremely unlikely to me that this will be approved given all the, the criticism that it received instantly. But in a world in which this did happen, I think, you know, coaches who got these opportunities shouldn't turn them down. It's The point I was trying to make is just that, you know, you would be associated with a team jumping six spots from where it is slotted to pick in the third round. Like that, that's a part of a transaction on mm-hmm. the wire. It's like, you know, X coach hired, um, X team moves up six slots in the third round. And if you look at like, I mean, it's this long list of bullet points. If a minority assistant left to become a coordinator elsewhere, his former club would receive a fifth round compensatory pick. And it kind of, goes on and on. And the thing that it made me think of was Tampa Bay sending two first-round picks and two second-round picks to the Raiders for John Gruden. I think that they weren't disappointed with that trade because they they won a Super Bowl. But like that's the that's the value that's connected to John Gruden, right? And then, you know, minority coach TBD is worth six slots in the third round. It's just makes it, it makes the whole thing look chintzy mm-hmm. and ridiculous and unfair um, from whatever perspective you want to look at it. It's just the whole thing looks chintzy. It makes it look like the result of a round of negotiations where someone in the NFL headquarters said, well, maybe it's worth a first round pick. And someone else said, no way. What are you kidding me? A black coach? That's a sixth round pick. And then they settle on six slots in the third round. It looks cheap. Yeah, I think we can put a pin there. Clearly, we'll be hearing more about this. The NFL owners will meet on this on Tuesday, which will be the day some of you all listen to this podcast. So um, maybe we'll circle back on this later. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for Afterballs and... There's a really sad part of Brian Russell's Wikipedia page. I just wanted to let you guys know. <laughs> it's not enough. I, I wanted to prepare you because this is how, how sad it is. It reads as follows. In 2009, Jordan mentioned Russell in his Hall of Fame induction speech, recalling an interaction they had during Jordan's first retirement in 1994. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, Russell says, why did you quit? You know, I could guard you. Jordan says, from this day forward, if I ever see Russell in shorts, I'm coming at him. In response, Russell challenged Jordan to a game of one-on-one for charity. Such a matchup has not yet taken place, though the Utah Flash of the NBDL did stage a halftime game between Russell and a Jordan lookalike. <laughs> oh, God. That's that's like racing a horse, you know? <laughs> Poor Brian Russell. Hmm. Uh, Utah Flash of the D-League, the G-League, I guess it is now, staged this, I guess. Congratulations to them for coming up with the, that promotion. Stefan, what is your Utah flash? Well, this past week, Major League Baseball prepared 67 pages of medical and safety protocols should the sport return for a partial season. On-field proposals include social distancing during the national anthem and when men are on base, no managerial lineup card swapping, no throwing the ball around the horn, no high-fiving, no fist bumping, no spitting, tobacco chewing, or sunflower seed expectorating. The no-spitting edict is getting a lot of attention because... No spitting in baseball? What next? No crotch grabbing? They're killing baseball. Anyway, you'll recall that a few weeks ago I reported that the last huge U.S. pandemic in 1918 and 19 was not responsible for outlawing the spitball. I also didn't turn up any evidence that the pandemic hastened the demise of plain old spitting in baseball. Players began spitting during baseball's earliest years in the mid-19th century when chewing tobacco was very popular. Tobacco produced saliva, which was good for lubricating the mouth on dry, dusty ball fields and also for lubricating newfangled leather gloves. I couldn't find any stories about the contemporaneous spitting habits of 19th century baseball players, but I did stumble across an interesting item in the February 1, 1896 edition of the Pittsburgh Press. Quote, Van Haltren will be asked to sign an agreement curtailing his tobacco smoking during the playing season. Van Haltren was George Van Haltren. He played 17 seasons, mostly for the New York Giants, stole tons of bases, batted over 300 a dozen times, and he also had an awesome handlebar mustache. A few days after the Pittsburgh report, a story in the Buffalo Morning News reported that the Giants club people had sent word to Van Haltren in San Francisco that unless he quit smoking or at least limit himself, he could not play on the New York team next year. (laughs) 
Giants owner Andrew Friedman, the paper said, is convinced that Van's excessive smoking interfered with his good work last year, and he insists on limiting the abuse. It's interesting that people in 1896 thought that smoking might be bad for athletes. A 2009 Slate explainer about baseball and chewing tobacco by Brian Palmer noted that the sudden decline of former batting champion King Kelly in 1892 was attributed to his longtime habit of smoking while patrolling the outfield. But Van Haltren was no Kelly. He didn't do good work in 1896. He did great work. He hit 340, stole 32 bags, drove in 103 runs, and had a career-high OPS of 9-11. Not that he would have known that, because OPS didn't exist in 1896. So why would the Giants leak a story about Van Haltren's smoking problem? Probably because Friedman, the owner, was a notorious asshole whom Bill James called George Steinbrenner on quaaludes with a touch of Al Capone. Friedman was a real estate millionaire and Tammany Hall insider who routinely alienated his players and managers. Star pitcher Amos Rusi would sit out that 1896 season because of disputes with the owner. The smoking threat against Van Haltren was probably a contractual ploy by Friedman against a star player. According to an incredible Sabre bio written by Bill Lamb, Friedman fought with fellow National League owners and literally fought with reporters covering the Giants. To punish the league for not taking his side after a player used an anti-Semitic slur against him on the field, he tanked the Giants, saying, I would not give five cents for the best baseball player in the world to strengthen it. That nearly crippled the league because other teams relied on big gates from Giants games. His fellow owners wound up caving, Friedman finagled his way back into power until he left the sport to run the construction of New York's first subway line, the IRT, from which he got even richer and for which he was widely praised. Friedman later was a director of the company that backed the Wright brothers. He had a nervous breakdown and died in 1915 at age 55. As for Van Haltren, Baseball Associates defended him against the smoking charge. Connie Mack said that, I am confident he never carried it to that extreme where his health was injured. The big outfielder was always very careful of his health. The trainer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, where Van Haltren played before joining the Giants, said the smoking report was absurd and that Van Haltren was a crank on his health when he was in Pittsburgh. He backed up that claim with details. Van Haltren was usually the first man in the room after the game and was the last one out. He would not go out in the air in a sweat. He was careful about eating, and finally, and obviously most important to maintaining one's health, after taking his bath and being rubbed down, he would always stand around fanning himself with a towel for five minutes before dressing. I couldn't determine whether Van Haltren smoked less or more during the 1896 season, but he had a career-best 351 average with 39 steals and a league-leading 21 triples. Nice. Josh, what's your Utah flash? So before I get to my actual Utah flash, I have to say that I have an update on the Michael Jordan, Brian Russell lookalike one-on-one game from 2009. This is the price of looking up an afterball name too quickly. So it turns out that the owner of the Utah team, Brant Anderson, tried to convince people that it was actually a real game and like sent the lookalike all over town um, to try to drum up interest in this and ended up having to offer refunds to 7,500 people that bought tickets to this game 
to uh, you know thinking that they're going to see a Brian Russell, oh. Michael Jordan one-on-one game. Oh man! Offered a hundred thousand dollars to the charity of the winner's choice. Jordan somehow declined, shockingly, to play Brian Russell at a D League game in two thousand nine. So. Just a little bit more information. Now, on to my actual Utah Flash. A couple weeks ago, my friend Ted McClelland asked an important question on Twitter. Is The Last Dance going to ask Michael Jordan why he wouldn't license his image to NBA Jam? The answer, Ted, is no. The Last Dance did not address that. (laughs) Like, it didn't address so many other things, so I will address it now. Jordan was not in the arcade and home console smash hit NBA Jam because he opted out of regular NBA licensing and made his own arrangements, presuming correctly that he could cut better deals for himself than the league could make on his behalf. But by opting out of NBA Jam, he missed out on the irreplaceable opportunity to be part of the Amusement and Music Operators Association's most played video game for 1993. Actually, it's not true. I mean, the part about it being the most played game is true. But because Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan, he did get to have his boom shakalaka cake and eat it too. In an oral history published in Sports Illustrated, video game developer Mark Tremell says the following, and I quote, Gary Payton got a hold of me and wanted to be in the game. I told him what we would need, not thinking anything would come of it. Um, I should say that Gary Payton is not in the game and that if you play NBA Jam, it's Sean Kemp and Benoit Benjamin. Gary Payton was feeling a little bit left out. So he calls uh, the the developer of the game. Uh, the developer says, I told him what we would need, not thinking anything would come of it. It's a lot of effort, like nine images for the head. Then I received photographs in the mail, Payton standing in front of a wall at all these angles. Then he said, oh, I'm buddies with Ken Griffey Jr. And he wants to be in the game. And Michael Jordan wants to be in the game. I did a special version of the game with the three of them in it. I sent that to Peyton. I was happy to do it, but it was pretty early in his career. It wasn't even clear it was the right move. Okay, Gary Payton got Michael Jordan in NBA Jam, and Michael Jordan was still an asshole to him in the last dance, shaking my damn head. Um, This MJ version of NBA Jam has never been released. Gary Payton apparently has it in his garage. Uh, You know, if you want to play this, just ask Gary Payton. It's not me. It's not on me. Uh, according to the NBA Jam Super Nintendo FAQ on the website GameFAQs published on April 7th, 1994, any codes that you might receive to, quote, unlock Jordan in the console version of the game are, quote, bogus and are merely an attempt by one person to make themselves look cool. Don't fall for it, GameFAQs says in 1994. The FAQ continues, other rumored secret characters that can be confirmed as false are as follows. I'm I'm not making this up. These are all all false. False rumored secret characters. The list is Barney the Dinosaur, Beavis and Butthead, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Randall Cunningham, Jim Harbaugh, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Dr. J, Ermac the Red Ninja, don't know who that is, Rush Limbaugh, Darth Vader, Superman, Al Pacino, Santa Claus, the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, Cool Spot, Sinbad, Humpty Hump, Oprah, Alien, Predator, Dre, Snoop, and Michael Jackson. No mention of uh, Biggie and Tupac, Joel. Humpty Uh, Humpty Hump of Digital Underground? Yes. So if you wanted to play Humpty Hump in a video game, you might be out of luck, unless there are games out there that I don't know about. But there have been various Jordan titles released over the years. One of them, Michael Jordan Chaos in the Windy City, is a side-scrolling platformer released in 1994 in which Jordan throws basketballs to incapacitate his enemies. 
You can watch a playthrough of the entire game on YouTube because of course you can, but everything you need to know really is in the like cutscenes in the beginning that explain the premise of the game. So I'm just going to read that part to you and then we'll be done. Um, it begins with uh, the following title. It's a windy day in Chicago. First practice for an all-star charity game. So you know this is phony. Michael Jordan would never play in a charity game. Uh, <laughs> Michael shows up and finds his team has disappeared. Their stuff is here, but they're not, he says. This is weird. Suddenly, through a skylight, crash, a ball with a note scrawled on it. Note, Mr. Jordan, if you want to save your pals, come to the Egyptian room in the Field Museum at midnight. Come alone, signed Dr. Max Cranium. Michael says, man, this is serious. I'd better check it out. The panel then reads, that night, a guard lets Michael into the closed museum. In the Egyptian room, Michael, well, I'm here. Now what? Hey, a door in the wall. He enters warily. Michael, what the? The panel, finding himself at the entrance to an underground prison, Michael sets out to find his friends. And then we begin. Not any weirder than Space Jam, I guess. Sounds better than Space Jam. Although, you know, just the notion that Michael Jordan has friends that if the friends disappeared, that he would want to find them, that seems a little bit less believable than the fact that you can throw basketballs at your enemies to incapacitate them. Michael Jordan, Chaos in the Windy City. Buy it today. That is our show. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you are still here, you might want even more hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we're joined by our colleague, Heather Schwedell, sports newbie. She talked about her experience watching The Last Dance. With the bullying and trash talk in general, I mean, I realized that he was painting a rosier picture of it than was probably really true because, yeah, if I were a rookie and had Michael Jordan, like, terrifying me all the time, I would hate that. I wouldn't think of him in the same way as at all. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.